Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome our speakers, Matt Dickerson, Director of the Grover and Herman Center for the Federal Budget, and Norbert Rochelle, Director of the Center for Data Analysis. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the event. Um, inflation and Congress's role in controlling it. And today I'm joined by Matt Dickerson. He is our, he's the director of our Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget. And the purpose of our conversation today is to get as many facts to you as quickly as possible about inflation uh, and Congress's role in controlling it. <laughs> so I'm delighted to dive right into that conversation. And we're gonna start at the basic point. Matt, let's just talk about what exactly is inflation? Sure thing. When we talk about inflation, as a general matter, what we're talking about is the overall level uh, change in the level of prices throughout the, the entire economy. And I would contrast that with what some people might perceive inflation as being as the change of individual goods or services. And that, so what we know, too, uh, from the data in the, in the last few months is that individual prices of certain categories of goods have gone way up. Uh, and that sort of sparked some of these fears about inflation. But what we're saying here, if I'm reading you right, uh, is that that's actually not necessarily inflation. Absolutely. Uh, when when uh, the prices of a certain good or a service is going up or down, that doesn't isn't necessarily per se inflation uh, or deflation. Uh, prices in the economy go up and down all the time. Uh, it's kind of often that's based on the, the normal mechanics of the markets, the supply and demand not necessarily the change in the overall price level. Uh, I think one thing uh, as a good example is gas prices, right? Through a normal year, gas prices will often fluctuate about 20% uh, based on driving patterns and other government regulations that restrict uh, supply and, and demand. Um, as an example, a year ago, demand for gas uh, fell pretty dramatically over what a normal summer months would be as uh, the government restrictions on travel uh, depressed demand for gas. But earlier this year, uh, there was a pretty significant restriction in supply of gasoline uh, with the, the pipeline uh, cyber attack that dramatically reduced the, the amount of supply, and we saw prices go up from there. So, but, that's, uh, but that's not necessarily indicative of the overall level of, of price changes for the entire economy, uh, for the, the change in, in just that one, one good. Um, but I think it's it's helpful now that we talked a little bit about the kind of the baseline generic, what is inflation? Uh, obviously, we're doing this event here for a reason uh, now, uh, and that's because the most recent inflation reports, the, the CPI reports from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, uh, made some news over the last couple of reports. So I was hoping you could dive in yeah. and uh, tell us what what those reports said. Sure. So the April report showed month-to-month -month changes in the, the consumer price index, the CPI. Uh, of about a 0.8% increase. And then in May, we had about a 0.6% increase. So it didn't go up quite as much, but it still went up quite a bit compared to what had been happening. Um, and then the numbers that really got people sort of 
up in arms uh, were the annual changes. So if you look from April to April, April 2020 to April 2021, uh, you had a 4.2% jump in the CPI. And then if you do the same thing for May, from May to May, it was a little bit more than a 5% jump. And those were some of the biggest increases that we've had uh, since around 2008, when we had another big shock. Uh, so that should sort of like so so that just shows you sort of the, the the issue what sparked all of this concern, and also kind of gives you a context of uh, okay wait let's let's take a breath because the last time we had a really big shock to the economy something similar to this happened, so it's not indicative necessarily of a long-term increase in inflation. That's something that we always have to worry about, but we still have to keep things in perspective and, and, and watch them. Um, so that's, that's kind of you know, where we've been uh, or, or, or why we're here and, and what's been going on just in these last couple of months coming out of the pandemic. Sure. And maybe could you dive into some of the components that made up those those year-to-year -year increases and what kind of drove those headline numbers? Yes, that's one of the more interesting things too, I think. Um, again, talking about coming away from a shock. Well, the shock that we've had this time isn't a financial crisis, but it was the COVID pandemic. And in some respects, it's even a little bit worse than the OH shock because we literally shut businesses down and people had to stay home uh, or felt they had to stay home. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and stop spending and stop going out and buying things. So there was a huge drop in demand, a forced drop in demand, and we saw a drop in a lot of different prices. Um, and then as the economies opened back up, that demand goes up, people start going out and spending again, and, in, and they also have extra, some extra money uh, from some of the stimulus spending. So, they, so, so you would expect to see demand go up, and that's what we've seen. Um, if we look closely, what we see is some of the COVID-related, is what I'm calling them, COVID-related categories of spending uh, that explain a good portion of the jump. Used car, truck, uh, used car and truck prices, for example. Um, a lot of the, the major rental companies were completely lost, right? No business whatsoever, no traveling. Uh, so they sold off a lot of their fleet and a lot of their fleets of cars and trucks. And that's all changing now. That's coming back now. They're buying now. There's more buying. So you've seen a huge spike in those in those car and truck prices. That category by itself is about roughly 13 to 15 percent of the CPI increase. Wow. Yeah, um, that's a, so that, that explains a good bit of it. Then when you look at things like food prices, restaurant, whether it's restaurant meals uh, or just uh, dine, whether it's dine-in, takeout, or just food. Um, uh, hotel lodging, airfares, uh, these sorts of travel-related expenses, right? Which is, again, where you would expect to see a big drop. Those are starting to recover. So that's about another 12 to 15% of the overall CPI change in these last couple of months. Then when you throw in energy and gas prices, which we know spike around this time of year, you're looking at uh, just gas prices as about a third. So when you combine all those things, that's about half of the jump. Um, now, that isn't necessarily good, but there is an explanation. There's a logical explanation there that's not necessarily uh, because of a new inflation spike. It's just it's a recovery spike, right? Um, now, it, that could become a problem. That's something that we have to watch. But the Fed is watching that, and it, it just has, it has not gotten out of control yet. Um, it is it is still something that is 
reasonably to be expected, or is to be reasonably expected. Yeah. Uh, that's so that that's that's where we are on that. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's COVID related, yeah. and we and it's going to take some time for that stuff to shake out. Um, so I think it, it's it's also worth mentioning there when we talk about these COVID related problems, these also sort of caused uh, some labor issues, right? Mm -hmm. And that's also a concern. Um, I think that that's potentially and partially now responsible for some of the prices. Restaurants in particular have a really hard time hiring people and getting people to come into work. Um, they have to advertise that they're going to pay you more if you're going to come to work there. So that some of that cost is almost certainly getting passed on to the consumer. Uh, maybe that's temporary, but it's certainly getting passed on. You know, so that's part of it. And everybody's not back to work yet. That drives another sort of concern that we hear a lot now, which is, hey, are we back in the 1970s? Are we is this this stagflation thing of the 70s? Yeah, I would say uh, that we're not in the 1970s stagflation era at this point, right? Uh, if you look at the labor markets, which which you mentioned and highlighted, uh, obviously the level of unemployment is too high. It's uh, well elevated above the pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and, and a lot of that is driven by government policy. We, um, obviously we've seen the unemployment bonuses where we're paying people $600 extra per week on top of normal unemployment payments. And that's driving a lot of people out of the labor market. Uh, we, we've seen actually more people receiving unemployment benefits than are considered unemployed uh, by the BLS surveys. Uh, <clears throat> But if you still look at the, the 1970s era during the Jimmy Carter years, uh, the unemployment level there was still higher than it is today. And if you look at the- It's a different cause, right? I mean, yeah. this is, these are different, completely different scenarios, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, and if you look at the, the, the level of prices in the 1970s, we're still not in the same uh, neck of the woods there. Uh, the lowest annual increase in the consumer price index in the 1970s was uh, above 3%, the lowest level, and we haven't uh, matched that on an annual basis yet uh, for, for our calendar year. And we saw inflation rates as high as above 12% in 1979 on an annualized basis. And the average annual increase on a calendar year basis in the 1970s was over 7%. Uh, whereas in contrast, uh, over the last 20 years, we've been averaging annual inflation under 2%. The Federal Reserve has been undershooting its, its 2% target, right? Yeah. Um, the they average, had trouble, trouble meeting the target, right? Exactly. exactly. Everywhere. Uh, the average monthly change in the CPI in the 1970s was 0.63%, whereas over the last decade, the average monthly increase in the CPI has been just 0.14%. Um, so obviously, uh, things can change quickly, and we should we should be monitoring, monitoring the data, uh, but I don't think it's... Uh, time to, to overreact necessarily at this point. But like we said, things can change quickly. Uh, the CPI levels have increased over the, the recent months. Um, and there's certainly a risk of higher inflation, potentially right. through all the big spending that's being proposed. So Norbert, I was hoping you could dive in to some of the risks over the potential of additional stimulus spending and what that could do 
sure. uh, for inflation. Sure. Even and you know this isn't. A, I'll, I'll quickly interject. You know this is not a partisan issue in the sense. Even Larry Summers, who is on the left uh, solidly, uh, has come out and said, "Okay, wait a minute. The the stimulus guys." The, the, the stimulus packages that you guys are putting out here, this is much bigger than the demand shortfall. Well, that's a classic problem, right? That's a classic inflation problem. So yeah, that risk is real. Um, you know, in some sense, you get too many dollars chasing too few goods. We get a whole bunch of money out to a whole bunch of people, but we haven't done anything to change the underlying structure of the economy. Uh, so everybody has extra money to go spend on the same amount of goods. That is a recipe for inflation. So we do have to watch that. And I think that if you do it from the fiscal side, there's more of a danger probably of inflation um, because the Fed is closely monitoring, inflation, monitoring inflation and trying to adjust the supply of money mm -hmm. based on what they're seeing, whereas Congress is just trying to give people a bunch of money. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and then you know, once inflation's up, you know, way up, it's like, oh, okay, well, uh, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let the Fed clean it up. Yeah. Oh, right, and it is too late. So, so there is definitely a danger, and I do think the danger is more, um, more on the fiscal side. Um, I do think, however, we want to be careful, because and these, these are slightly different things in a way, um, but I think that one of the things that we've, uh, we've, we've encountered is this narrative that, well, the Fed's been printing all this money, and you know, that's, that's going to cause inflation, because that always causes inflation. And that's not quite right. And we have a graphic here um, to, to show that. Um, it, it's, it's, as a general principle, it's not quite right. Um, if we look at the, if, if the graph, when the graphic goes up, we'll see what we've got is a, a plot of changes in the money supply and changes in inflation in the price level. There we go. So you've got changes in the money supply in blue uh, and the inflation changes in red. And this is over the last decade. And what you can see is that we commonly have very large spikes uh, in the blue line in the money supply, but there's no change in inflation. We could have even done this for two decades, but we made the graph look neater by shortening it to yeah. one. Um, and probably past the last two decades, but um, we do have an incredibly large spike recently, but still the, the, the point holds that you normally see spikes in the money supply without necessarily seeing changes in inflation. And the reason is that what we're leaving out when we talk about this idea right now is a change in the demand for money. Okay. Or you might even hear the term velocity of money. Okay. Um, same, same difference though, right? What we're talking about is people are just holding on to money and not spending it. So that is essentially the Fed's job to respond to that and to make sure that there's more money in the economy. Otherwise, it's a calamitous. It's, it's an even bigger, mm -hmm. worse shock. So... The, the data it does show that they've appropriate the Fed has appropriately kept okay. liquidity out in the economy to offset that drop in demand, um, and and because of that, it's not a given that all this quote unquote printing and I don't okay. love that term, but let's just call it printing because it makes sense sort of um, is not necessarily going to cause inflation. Okay, interesting. So that's 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 where we are on that, and I think it's just important to point that out because that's. Um, that's sort of a common yeah. misnomer that we yeah, see. Yeah, I think out there that's helpful to dive into because it's uh, kind of 
what we're taught in kind of basic economics is to expect that and it hasn't necessarily borne itself out over over recent years. That's right. That's right. And you know, it it ignores all the different types of effects too, um, which is something we should touch on. I think um, you know when we have inflation, everybody knows about the uh, pocketbook costs, right? Um, but what about the federal budget? Um, why don't we talk about that for just a sec? Absolutely. I think that that's also a really important uh, topic to, to take into consideration when we're talking about inflation, and that's part of the reason why it's really important for Congress to take a, a strong role in, in monitoring uh, inflation. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office uh, says that inflation does have a very big effect on the federal budget. Uh, if CBO says that if inflation is just one percentage point higher each year than the baseline expectations, this is about 2% uh, is what CBO is expecting going forward over the, the, the two years because that's the, the Federal Reserve's target. Uh, that would add $5.2 trillion in more spending above the baseline. $5.2 trillion just from one percentage point each year uh, going forward over the next decade. And part of that how about half of that, $2.4 trillion of that would be higher net interest costs, net interest payments that just are the going to creditors just to carry the, the load of debt. Uh, and the federal government would also see about $2.9 trillion in, in higher revenues as a result of that inflation and the, the more activity going on in the, the higher nominal level of activity going on in the economy. Uh, so that's a, a pretty significant impact of, of inflation on the economy. Yeah. And and just so the federal budget, we have so much baked in, right? That exactly. If, if we do get the higher price level, we're going to just see an, an even larger spike in spending. Now. Exactly. Um, and and what about and maybe this is just one fine detail to get out there too. Um, the the way they account for inflation in those in those programs is, is there are there any issues there for people to pay attention to? Absolutely. And this is a really important uh, thing for members of Congress or policymakers that are concerned about the potential impacts of inflation should be really focused on. Uh, is that the federal government for our spending programs uses an older and outdated measure of inflation. It uses the basic CPI, the, the Consumer Price Index, uh, whereas the federal government has developed newer and more accurate measures of inflation. Uh, the chain CPI uh, is, is considered more accurate because it takes into account consumer behavior uh, and, and the replacement effect uh, for measuring inflation. Uh, the Federal Reserve uses PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Measure, uh, which is also considered to be more accurate. In 2017, we updated the tax code to use chain CPI in the tax code, uh, and it's the, considered to be more accurate. Um, so there's no reason for us to use an old, outdated measure of inflation for our spending programs. Yeah. Uh, we can ensure that people get more accurate cost of living increases uh, by just updating the, the measure. Just using a better measure. Absolutely. And so that's a really important thing. If you're concerned about the potential impacts of, of inflation on the economy, on the federal budget, let's just act, measure it. Use the more accurate measure that we already have, that the federal government already produces. Makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about the fiscal impacts um, and, and the fiscal considerations. Uh, let's spend some time talking about the Federal Reserve, right? Uh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I know one of your favorite issues, right? Uh, so for the last uh, more than a decade, the Federal Reserve has been operating under a financial crisis yeah. framework, um, even though conditions on the ground have certainly changed since 2008, right? That's right. Um, but can you talk about how yeah. uh, the Federal Reserve might have to react to an, 
inflationary pressures yes. uh, given this framework that it's operating under? Sure. I think this is one of the big underrated sort of under the radar kind of things, you know, that people don't quite get. Uh, we just don't talk about it enough because it's so esoteric. But after the financial crisis, the Fed sort of backed into out of necessity because of what they did, this new operating framework. And that new operating framework hinges on paying interest on reserves. Okay. Okay. What does that mean? And that means that when they buy a whole bunch of stuff, assets to put liquidity in the con into the economy, they create reserves. And then, whereas previously they wouldn't pay any interest to the banks that were holding those reserves, now they do pay interest to the banks in order to get them to hold those reserves. Okay. So instead of relying on lending, interbank lending of reserves, which is the, the, uh, the federal funds market, everybody knows about the federal funds rate, well, instead of doing any of that, even though they still talk about it, the primary control mechanism is interest on reserves. So they, they create a bunch of uh, reserves by purchasing assets, whether it's mortgage-backed securities or treasuries, and then the, the bank reserves pile up. If those get used and lent out, that is inflationary. So in order to prevent that, they start paying interest. The Fed really? pays interest to the institutions that are holding those reserves because that's what will keep it in check, right? Well, that's fine in theory, but that's, this is entirely new. Yeah. And as the Fed has continued to do this, rather than revert back to their pre-crisis system, their balance sheet has continued to grow. And sure enough, they didn't normalize enough in time before the next crisis, and now the balance sheet has grown even more. So what, we're going to ha what, what is going to happen if we have higher inflation is that we're going to be in a completely untested environment as far as how the Fed operates. But what we do know is that they're going to have to pay more interest to keep those reserves from getting out the there to fight inflation. Yeah. Right. So you're going to be – we could easily be in a situation where the Fed – is paying hundreds of billions of dollars a year to large financial institutions in order to keep inflation in check. That's a political problem, and we don't know how well it's going to work because we've never really done it before. <laughs> so that is an enormous risk. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns there, and there's a lot of obvious problems there that you know Elizabeth Warren, for example, is not going to like, right? Yeah. Um, and but but that's the control mechanism that's set up. And you know, if if interest rates or inflation expectations start picking up, which is entirely possible, we're gonna quickly be in a situation uh that is one hundred percent new territory. Wow. Uh so given that, uh let's talk about what Congress should do. Like what what are some of the long term reforms that policymakers should be taking into consideration to 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 deal with this sure. paradigm and Long term, I think part of the answer is uh, what it was coming out of that last crisis. It's don't just let the Fed do whatever they want. Make them come up with a plan. And it doesn't have to be we'll clean up and go back to our old operating system next year. It can be here's a schedule that we're going to follow for the next five, ten years, whatever. So you put it out there and everybody knows what to expect. You could do something like that. That's one thing. Another thing uh, is to get rid of this this price stability and unemployment. We call it the dual mandate. Mm -hmm. um, we we don't want the Fed targeting prices, and we sure as heck don't want them targeting unemployment. There's many Fed officials admit that there's very little that they can do about unemployment. Really. 
So there's no point in worrying about that um, from the Fed's monetary gotcha. policy standpoint, right? It's a, it's a, it may be as a fiscal issue and a, and a regulatory issue, but it's, it's certainly not the Fed's problem. Um, what we want is we want them to be as neutral and as passive as, as possible. And one way to do that is to target uh, total nominal spending, mm -hmm. or you might hear uh, NGDP targeting, something like that. That would be a much better approach as a single mandate instead of a dual mandate. Uh, and then what we also want to do is we want to clean up this, what we have, which is now a blurry line between fiscal and monetary policy. Mm -hmm. Let the Fed do that monetary policy thing. If the federal government, if Congress is going to buy, let's just say, mortgage-backed securities to save Fannie and Freddie and to bolster the securities market, let them do that. Let Congress do that. Let it be transparent. Let it be a political fiscal let debate. The, exactly. Let them have that debate in Congress and, and let people see who's voting on that, when they're voting on that. Keep that stuff separate. Because now what you have is this, this weird sort of relationship or, well, I don't know if it's Historically, maybe it's not weird, but it's it's problematic historically, yeah. where you have the Fed standing ready to accommodate anything you have on the fiscal side, um, but without the same accountability, right? Yeah. It's just this thing that's in place. And now you have a Fed who can't rely on you know uh, their, their, their mandate pressure and say, mm -hmm. well, we can't just buy all this stuff because it's going to be inflationary. They have an operating system now in place that lets them literally do things without causing inflation because of this new control mechanism that they're trying. But there are real fiscal and political costs to that system, and we don't know how well it's going to work in terms of actually lowering inflation. So Congress is, is it, or I should say, it should be Congress's responsibility to, to control monetary policy and to control the Fed, and that's what we need them to do. We need them to stand up and do that and keep their fiscal operations separate. Great. Well, Norbert, thanks so much. I think that's been a really helpful breakdown, and I think it's been great having this conversation with yeah. you here with, with everybody today. I think so. I think we've done – I've enjoyed it, Matt. So, um, so thank you all for joining us. We appreciate you tuning in. Uh, we hope that the conversation has been informative for you and it informs your work. Um, and you'll receive a survey immediately following the event. Uh, please complete that survey so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square again. Uh, again, thank you very much and have a great day. Great. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Matt.